Profess Error, the podcast where we celebrate life in academia through the failures we've experienced, not to celebrate the ways in which we fell down, but the ways in which we've gotten back up. In this episode, we sit down with Professor Wei Wu of Fresno State University for the first of what we hope to be a series called Life After Tenure, where we talk to faculty members about career moves after getting tenure and passing that associate professor status. Hopefully enjoy it. Well, welcome everyone. Welcome to another episode of Profess Error. Today we're joined by a guest, Professor Wei Wu, who is a close collaborator of mine I've gotten to know over the last several years. Um, but today we're not going to talk as much about our research collaborations. We're going to talk a little bit about a topic that we hope to be covering in a couple of upcoming uh, podcasts, which is life after tenure. Um, I know a lot of our discussion thus far has been about how to uh, succeed in academia, how to transition from thinking like maybe a graduate student or a junior faculty to really producing in the ways that are expected in uh, academia. But a lot of times the focus has been on getting to be successful at the tenure process. And while that is undoubtedly an important hurdle, it's not the hurdle in your career. There are other opportunities. So we want to talk with some folks that are um, doing interesting things after they've achieved the sort of associate professor status, um, which Professor Wei Wu today um, has. So I know Wei as a collaborator on the research side, but today I'm talking to him more as the department chair. So uh, Wei, how are you doing today? Joined with Brian as well. Um, great yep. to have you both. So, so hopefully both are doing well today. Um, but wait, maybe let's start off with you, actually. Can you tell us a little bit about what do you do as the department chair? What, what's part of your role there? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Steve and Brian. Um, so I think as a department chair, one of the most critical things is how do you actually make the department run smoothly? Um, you know, an academic program is really important when it comes to its operation. Um, all the academic affairs and the faculty affairs, as well as student affairs, will be essentially um, you know, based upon your vision and the way you manage the departments. So it does, you know, represent the overall efficiency of the program. And, and also for internally, you know, as a department, you have a lot of connections to make with the university uh, administrators and uh, for construction management programs. Typically, we know that we have a strong tie with our industry. So that kind of relationship with our industry advisor board or sometimes we call them industry advisor council is also important. We have, you know, a lot of interests working with them and uh, secure uh, financial support and other um, formats of sponsorship as well from local industry. So that's pretty much my daily life, you know, but in the meantime, you know, as a department chair, I am still a faculty. So I do also have the regular roles I play as a faculty member. So how did you find yourself in that role? Were you assigned by the dean or were you elected? There is a funny story behind this, as a matter of fact, you know, it's uh, most of the time in academia, we know that a lot of people have uh, different, you know, aspirations that they want to actually pursue a career in um, leadership or administrator. Uh, me, on the other side, you know, I kind of be involved in some sort of governance because in our department, the governance is shared by different faculty members. Um, but eventually our department chair or our former department chair decided to pursue a PhD degree. Uh, he was from the industry. Um, so, you know, when looking around the department, somebody needs to step up. So instead of me stepping up, the other folks stepping down. So <laughs> leave me where I was. So, but, you know, I, I say that all the time as, as a fact, you know, it's like, 
it's unexpected. Let's put it that way. Um, but you know, in the meantime, I do appreciate the trust of my colleagues in me, and I decide to you know take the challenge and trying to see how I do. So I feel like when you heard about this, I think you and I were we met in person. I think either just after, shortly after you heard about this, and all I saw as an observer was excitement. But was there an element of nervousness about going into that kind of world. that's a lot of new sort of balls to juggle in the air of industry collaborations and some of the things you mentioned early on absolutely you know when you were recruited as a faculty the kind of expectation is uh, you're going to actually pursue excellence in teaching scholarship and you know advising students service etc uh, administration is never really uh, be part of the conversation um, so definitely uh, there's a lot of uncertainty there there's a lot of concern there but again, if I, um, you know, if I may, you know, kind of share with you guys is, I think it's really important to, you know, work with your past chair or actually your past leader. The leadership transition is never easy, right? It could be ugly sometimes, as you know that as well. If there is a tension between, you know, different faculty members. But in our case, I'm lucky enough that my current, my former chair is actually was nice enough. He offered it to sort of, you know, do this like. Um, graduate transition. So we start to meet like one semester before uh, we handed over leadership. So I was able to sort of work along with him to see what he does on a daily basis and uh, how he handles, you know, all those different type of relationships and what kind of a daily schedule does it look like. So that was tremendously uh, helpful. Uh, so I appreciate that a lot. And, you know, for many other faculty members, but now as be lucky as I was, you know, some of them some of them may actually just throw into the position and all of a sudden he or she realized, oh, why do I all of a sudden become an enemy to anyone else? You know, it's kind of an odd, odd situation. But I have to say that I was uh, lucky to have a really good colleague to work with. And so, I mean, that, that illustrates, I suppose, in that transition process, some of the new responsibilities and tasks that you will be expected to handle, you know, starting the following semester, whenever the, the, the sort of reins, so to speak, were officially handed over to you. I guess I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about then with the new work you took on as department uh, chair, what are some of the things that had to give in terms of, of putting less time or less focus or attention from your, your old responsibilities on the teaching side, the research side, the service side? What were some of the things that you noticed there that you couldn't do as much of? I would have said the one gets most impact is actually does, uh, it does actually refer to the research part. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as we, uh, you and I collaborate on the projects there and I still have the projects going on under my belly. And uh, the time I have available to, you know, work with my students on different types of projects definitely gets reduced. And I almost have to force myself to be a little bit more, um, how to say, more efficient, maybe. Um, and also the ability to be able to make um, sort of, you know, uh, strategic planning aspects of my research also gets reduced because you do get a lot of other thoughts go through your mind because you have to plan for some of the unexpected tasks or um, responsibilities associated with, you know, being in the department chair. I think that's one, that one is actually um, gets hit most. Uh, in terms of teaching, you know, I would say, well, selfishly uh, say that I think it's actually an advantage because you do get some time off from teaching load. We, as a, as a primary teaching institution, 
almost every faculty in our institution will be assigned about three classes to teach, three to four classes, based upon the size of the classes and the session of the classes itself. Um, because of department chair, we do get some um, release time, so that way we can focus on managing the operations. So for that part, I think it's not really that bad. Um, in terms of advising, we still advise our students, you know, department chair or faculty member. Each of us gets assigned about anywhere from 20 to 40 students. Um, they saw us maybe, uh, say, twice uh, a year. So ideally, um, every semester before registration starts, we would like to meet up with our students to look at their roadmaps and study plans, make sure they will actually pick up the right classes in the right sequence, et cetera. And we do have open door policy in the department as well, although it's not like official, you know, but everyone, every students would like to talk to us. All they need is actually just send an email and request appointment, especially in the last year because of the, you know, um, pandemic. We have been hosting like open um, um, sort of like meetings with the students through Zoom all the time. So I think that part is still sort of normal. So, you know, in summary, I think, you know, research really definitely is something I don't want to give up, but I have to um, because of the necessity of the uh, requirements of the job, I would say. Yeah. It's interesting listening to that because I always one of the things you mentioned in that in that uh, explanation is that some of the big picture strategizing from a research perspective has has had to go because there's just not the time from it. I've often found that's one of my favorite parts of the job. I, I find that's often fun to be like, what do we want to do? Okay, you know, and you sort of have that blind optimism of you don't yet know what you don't know. And so you get a little of that, what is it, naivete, I guess, kind of guiding you to say, all right, well, we can do this great big thing. Um, do you miss that? I mean, I'm only, I'm, I guess I'm painting my impression, but I would miss that. That seems like a fun part of the job to me. Well, I can't agree with you more. I think, you know, part of the thing I believe Research is different from teaching and services because research sometimes could be so creative that it takes a long time and you're getting nowhere, but all of a sudden you're getting somewhere. So that kind of aha moment is actually not really aha moment. It's actually a long time discretion that you have made so many efforts ahead of time, then it accumulates and eventually it brings that idea. And also, all the conversations you made with others, all the collaborators you've been talking to eventually come together. And it takes time to sort of, you know, see its inf information. I mean, it, it really takes time. Uh, and um, without, with, without, you know, a strategic manner or a plan to actually putting things together, it's very difficult to come up with the research that is really solid. Um, I do miss that part exactly like, like you were describing. So do you find that, or do you get the sense that in your current role, because uh, you're, you're an associate professor, so there's still one more promotion there to get to full professor. Do you find, or are you worried that you in your current role is taking away from some of the things that you have to do in order to make that final leap to full professor? Well, I, I think that's a great question. You know, um, part of me would argue it's yes and no. I, I say yes is because definitely it's going to sort of impact my research record, right? You know, uh, as much as I still want to do research, I still, you know, spend time working with Steve and other collaborators on my research. But inevitably, the kind of production, I would say, is actually uh, affected. But in the meantime, as we know that, you know, between uh, assistant and associate professor, 
the kind of matrix is fairly clear, right? You know, you got to publish so many articles, you're going to secure so much funding there, and you can do this and that. But I think between the associate professor and professor, that criteria isn't that clear anymore, especially in our institution. We're being actually warned by our dean and uh, provost already at the time when they gave us the tenure letter. Uh, they were saying that, you know, congratulations, now you're into next level. But, you know, be aware that between the associate and the professor, you really, there is no clear guidance. It's all up to you. What do you want to do? What do you think you can do to become a true professor that exemplifies all the excellence in all different kinds of arenas? So to me, I think being able to have the opportunity to become a department chair actually adds value to my you know portfolio. And when I go for professor and promotion application, I would highlight this experience to be something that I have never done before. It kind of filling the gap in my whole skill set. I would look at it that way. I think that makes Great. sense. But by the way, I feel like we should probably say it's just a very quick aside for some of the listeners who may be grad students. They, I suspect many have heard of the idea of an assistant to associate. That is typically the change in title that also often comes with the tenure, which is the, is a big deal because that means you've got a position at that institution for the for, for the future for your your career basically the shift between associate and full is a promotion it is a next kind of major hurdle but part of i suspect why the criteria there may be less um, externally strict in terms of how it's set is because even if worst case scenario you didn't get full professor you still have tenure and so i think that's part of the kind of the the background there so I'm, i you both know this, but I'm trying to just give a little bit of background for our listeners so they understand the criticality of making it to associate and how it's a little bit different going associate to full at that point. That's a Absolutely. good question. So I wonder then if we can talk um, a little bit about some of the I don't even think challenge is the right word for you, Wei, because you've, you've been active in research, and I'm saying this because I, I know, because I work with you, but you, you have mentioned in several occasions here that research sometimes is what um, takes a little bit of a, 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 a backseat to when other urgent responsibilities emerge. One of the challenges that we chatted about earlier um, in prepping for this is about reintegrating into a research-focused role after holding a leadership role. So after you've taken, you know, five hours a week, ten hours a week to do uh, administrative planning for courses or handling grievances that arise or whatever issues emerge in your sort of administrative leadership role, what kinds of challenges do you envision in reintegrating back into a sort of full uh, full research, active researcher role? Like, what, what types of um, issues or do you think will emerge there? Well, I think that's really, you know, an important question I should ask myself all the time as well is like, you know, um, our industry and our field of research is changing so fast. Um, so, you know, part of the challenge I would say is how do I keep myself up to date and how do I keep myself um, open to what's going on in my research community? Um, how What kind of strategy do I have there? Maybe I'm not directly doing this research, but are there any other, you know, um, ways or approaches I can familiarize myself with what's going on in the industry or in the research, um, you know, community. So part of that I find is actually really 
trying to follow, you know, a few critical conferences there, you know, still try my best to attend those conferences. May not may not be presenting anything, but at least you know I get to know the proceedings. I get to know you know what are some of the most you know、um, discussed topics in my field, and、uh, also keep an eye on you know possible major breakthroughs you can get from some of those leading、um, publications. And、uh, NSF is oftentimes the you know source we go towards because you can always find out what some of the Um, pioneers in the research in that field is doing at this point.、Um, another thing is I can think of is actually push myself. Still, don't give up actually writing proposal. You know, I, I think writing proposal is a great exercise that kind of force you to have that kind of researcher、uh, mindsets, right? If you want to do this research, how can I do this? What is the most you know、uh, established methodology at this point? What are some of the literature、um, telling us? So writing proposals is another approach I, you know, still trying to keep up,、uh, to keep myself up to date. So I guess you know, in a, in a short way to answer your question is one of the most important things I think is always stay in the loop, always stay up to date, and don't one hundred percent give up research. I know that means additional hours outside of your regular working hours. That means a lot of late nights.、Uh, You know, sometimes you just gotta do it because I know that deep down, research is still one of my biggest interests. I would not give up on it, basically. Yeah, I wonder how much of it is also benefited by having、uh, collaborations. You may also have some independent projects that I'm just unaware of, but I know of at least a couple collaborations that you've had、uh, that you've been pursuing. Only some of them are with 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 me, which is great. I'm bringing this up to say I do wonder if part of it is in. Partnering strategically with others, you can potentially have some elements of the work handled by others. So we're doing some kind of technological intervention. We get someone at a collaborating institution to do the user interface development or whatever. Potentially, that could be a really beneficial way to、um, enable your work to continue making progress, even if your involvement is more on. I'll mentor a student who's leading this, as opposed to I'm going to put my own hours on a Saturday and or you know whatever. Um, and it seems like I don't know if that was purposeful on your end. It sounds like maybe not because of the way the position emerged. But if you had to go back and do it, it would seem like that would be a really wise strategy, because I think if you had to, if you were the sole PI、um, on every project you had going, and then tried to take on this role, I have to believe that would just be a nightmare. And trying to juggle all of those responsibilities, having no one else on the team to support, and then oh by the way, also having to. Schedule courses and and you know handle all of the challenges that you'd have leading the department. Well, I I you you're absolutely right. You know I'm lucky enough. You know I have collaborators like you and a few others at the University of Florida and oh、um, Oklahoma University, etc. I, I think you know our I would say as recently we see that not only just we realize as you know faculty member. We realize how valuable collaboration is, but also all those funding agencies. You see the trends there is actually they are encouraging people from different disciplines to collaborate. Not only just you know within the STEM, sometimes they came up with a STEM, you know, added the arts and humanities perspective into it as well. In my field, you know, you you know this、uh, very well. Is I think that one of the biggest you know impacts we could actually have、um, by utilizing our research in our teaching really is working with. 
learning scientists and engineering educators. I think, you know, to be honest, when I, you know, graduate from my PhD and I start teaching, we never receive any teaching training. You know, that's kind of something you have always ask ourselves, like, you know, how can we do this, right? How well can we do this? You know, yes, I, I work as a TA, I taught a few classes, you know, for my um, uh, mentors, but when it comes to teaching the whole class, how do you master class? How do you actually profess the contents? How do you actually make sure your students learn something? We learn a lot. I learned at least a lot, you know, by working with you and, you know, Jeremy um, in that project is really the way we think, the way we plan for understanding how people learn is essentially important. And having a collaborator working with you is really the best thing could ever happen to me. You know, you not only you have done the projects and you enjoy doing research, but you 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 are able to absorb something new that can help you improve you as a teacher, as an instructor. I think that's really important. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, by the way, for anyone listening, that, so that uh, collaborator you mentioned, Jeremy London, we actually do have a, a podcast with her as well. So if you're interested in hearing about uh, some of these other individuals who, who make for fun collaborators, um, they're there. But, uh, well, great. I wonder if we can shift then and talk a little bit about some of your experiences in this role. I think as you are probably well aware, the aim of this podcast is to kind of celebrate failure in academia, partly because it's not really a topic we often cover or show on our, on our CVs, but also because it can often lead to really valuable lessons that we can take away. I think when you're in the role of department chair, you are going to take on a lot of new um, decision-making roles that may mean you're going to make decisions who that will impact people that used to be colleagues of yours, faculty, and now you know at least organizationally are sort of below you in the in the organizational chart. How have you dealt with kind of making unpopular decisions? Can you talk about maybe some examples and and what's happened? What did you learn? What, you know what went well? What could have been better? Well, absolutely. I think really, you know, it's it's a really interesting transition, not only just the title changes, but I think also psychologically, you know, the way you interact with your faculty, with your colleagues may change a little bit as well. And um, I would say uh, a lot of people believe that, you know, as a department chair, you have quite a bit of authority. But I, I have to say, you know, be very careful about use that authority, because if you use it, then you got to be able to justify it, right? So the biggest challenge I see there is, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, usually as a department chair, you really focus on a few things, you know, the academic affairs, faculty affairs, and student affairs. And of course, you need to work with your, you know, institution, work with your industry advisor board members, et cetera. Uh, I use the, you know, like academic affairs as an example, um, course scheduling. We all understand that how important it is, you know, in order to make our teaching smoothly, um, course scheduling is really important. Um, you know, I run into this little dilemma in terms of, you know, assigning different courses to different faculty members with the different modalities, you know, and the preferences there. We have this thing called uh, order of assignment. Basically, it, you know, illustrates the seniority of different faculty members in our departments. And usually we're told to, you know, fill up their schedule first before moving to the next tiers, et cetera. And of course, tenured, tenured and tenured track faculty member has the highest order of assignments. Then you have, you know, three-year contracts. You have purely part-time instructors, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, I have made this decision to assign, you know, a course to faculty, let's say faculty A. 
And uh, factor B wasn't quite, you know, happy with that decision because, you know, factor A, uh, factor B taught that class before, got fabulous student ratings, etc. And they took ownership of that class. Of course, I understand, you know. So he, I mean, the factor B is emailing me asking, you know, why was that decision made? I have to explain to factor B that, you know, because unfortunately there was a class factor A used to teach was taken away from the curriculum. We needed to fill up, you know, factor A's load. So that's the reason behind it. You know, and, and I also explained that, you know, because in the future we see there's an opportunity for multiple sessions to be opened. So faculty B may still teach that, you know, course as well. And then besides, we did actually add one new course to faculty B to kind of make it up, right? But regardless, you know, you will run into situations like this. But during this process, I learned a lesson is, you know, um, small talks and make sure that you solicit inputs from all your faculty members is really important. Yes, you absolutely have the authority to make a decision by assigning different courses to different faculty members with different modalities and preferences, whatever. But having people understand what gets involved in your decision-making process is really important and it could be very helpful because you can <clears throat> explain to them there is transparency in your decision making. It's not because I don't like faculty B, so I take the, take the class away from her or him. It's more about, you know, based upon those different factors, we have to make this difficult decision. And of course, eventually faculty B may still not be happy with the decision, but we're open to listen, you know, to feedbacks and we can do adjustments down the road. But that kind of gives you an idea that, you know, that what you as department chair would get into. Um, you know, there's some other similar examples, but I find, you know, learn the lesson is really uh, communicate. Um, people actually, in the meantime, you know, yes, as much as they know, they have this kind of different perspectives or maybe they have a bias towards authority. But in the meantime, I believe that faculty members, our colleagues actually would appreciate leadership if you use it in the right way. Um, so that's my take on this. Was the was the department when you when you joined always as transparent as you made it, or did you do you feel like you made it more transparent? Well, fortunately, I would say that I have been able to maintain <clears throat> the transparency. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, our department has been much. I, I said you know at the very beginning that I'm lucky enough. I've been working with a, a group of colleagues that are extremely um, open minded. Mm -hmm. They all have different personality, right? You know, very diverse backgrounds. And uh, uh, we're always proud of that. You know, diversity is always important in, uh, uh, in our department. Um, but we believe shared governance and transparency is important. Um, so our formal chair and including what I've been doing now is make sure when there is a big decision, we need to get input from everyone. And that's just, you know, that's the rule we follow. And that's how we actually run our department, um, you know, internally. Okay. Yeah, I feel like that's an important um, detail there because it, it's, you know, as you talk about the sort of priority approach you have, you know, full tenured uh, professors may be at a certain priority and you, you go down the list. It would seem like by default, someone who's maybe an adjunct professor might kind of be lower on the list. Um, I understand that from a salary perspective and, and how salaries are paid. Um, but I suspect, especially in your role now, Wei, you've probably also seen getting really good industry members who are working 40 to 50 to 60 hours a week to say, hey, can you also teach a course 
that's not going to pay you much money that you're going to do because you love it. Even if that's not dollar-wise a big cost, the opportunity cost of getting those people and the potential of losing them and having to find another person, I got to believe is a challenge. So it's interesting to see that that's where they fall. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the course I teach. I have a, a co-instructor who I, I think is just he's one of the best out there that I've, I've gotten the chance to work with. Um, if it was an oper- if it was a situation where that individual was lost and I had to go find someone else, that would be a hard, a tough road to go down. So I guess I'm wondering, have they looked at in this system, or or, or is this a consideration for you to look at how replaceable is someone for teaching these spots? Right. If I get a tenure track faculty member, they may be higher on the pecking order, but I, I've got them. I mean, they're gonna presumably they're gonna stay here. Yeah, they could theoretically leave the university, but they're a little more locked in, at least based on a salary. If I gave them a course that wasn't their first choice and said well, you got to go learn estimating or statics or whatever topic you're gonna give them, they're a little bit locked in. If I told someone from industry, yeah, you're not making much money in this course, you're doing it because you love it. And now I want you to change because you're lower in the pecking order. I got to believe a lot of them are going to say, no, thanks. I'll go elsewhere. Is that a consideration? Well, that's actually certainly a concern. I would have said this, right? You know, usually the way we um, recruit part-time instructors is based upon a few factors. Uh, The expertise definitely is the first priority when we consider part-time instructor. The second one is actually... We really don't have a whole lot of expectation in terms of, you know, we would we would not count on our part-time instructor to do like something else such as assessment. You know, we are all ACC accredited. You know, we have to do, you know, learning outcome assessments. We usually, we do not really, you know, put such a load on our part-time instructor. What we truly want to take advantage is their experience, their, you know, um, engagement, I think putting a industry instructor in the classroom is a huge, you know, inspiration to our students. So we oftentimes would target courses that is like, you know, introductory courses, you know, there's elective courses, things like that. We will use, you know, part-time instructors. That concern you just described was definitely there. That's kind of why we try to avoid, you know, have a part-time instructor teach a class of what we're going to have a couple of learning autocon to be assessed that i think yeah uh, if we have you know that kind of scenario then if that instructor leave then you're gonna be in trouble because you don't have assessment data you will have issues like that yes definitely that's definitely consideration there yeah and, and i have to i know that the focus of this hasn't been the covid year and that kind of thing but i have to believe that introduced only new challenges in this too because you also probably have people that said look i still i'm in industry i like teaching but i can't do it this year or you know, other people that have family situations or, or whatever, which I'm sure just threw an extra wrench into this whole mix of coming up with some kind of fair but also logical schedule for who teaches what. Um, any lessons learned related to challenging, to, to handling uh, this kind of, we're going to go to mostly remote challenge? I mean, things you'd do differently there? Well, so during the pandemic, and we have a lot of industry um, people used to have, you know, interest to teach them for us, basically have to tell us, you know, maybe we need to, you know, rethink, renegotiate because the industry is booming, <laughs> surprisingly. And one of the industries that did not really stop or slow down at all is construction. Um, so that's definitely something. And, and modality-wise, I think Fresno stay uh, is big on online teaching ever since pandemic hits. So we do have a lot of industry people participating, not maybe directly as an instructor, but 
our involvement of industry professionals in our courses, such as you know, um, um, like drill panels and uh, you know uh, graders or provide um, feedback to presentations, etc., is always there. So they actually kind of enjoy doing that a little bit. At least, you know, they still have interaction with the students. As a matter of fact, our industry advisor board member uh, members are heavily involved in a few course, um, you know, revision proposals because they realize there's an opportunity for us to rethink the delivery mo- modality of the courses. They actually share their thoughts. And、uh, another interesting example was actually because you know during the pandemic. And on those online courses, there there's a huge concern among the faculty member that related to honor codes, like you know, student cheating, right? You know, they cheat on the exams and projects, whatever. So our industry advisor board board members actually step up and created like a draft code of ethics during this pandemic, which is amazing, you know. So they actually added a lot of thoughts to what do they expect our students to become when they actually graduate from our program? What kind of professional standards they should Hold up, you know, against themselves to be considered as you know a, a professional in this community.、Uh, those are examples. I think you know industry advisor advisor board members could actually you know get involved, not necessarily directly teaching, but all those things they have been doing will have direct indirect impacts on our students. So maybe、um, changing, maybe going backward a little bit.、Um, you mentioned shared governance, and I, I think that's a, a really Interesting concept、um, as it applies to academics in particular, because academics have tend to have a lot of ego. They tend to think they know the best way to do it,、um, and so there's a lot of opinions coming together. And so, I could see your role, right, as a department chair, being one of like a horse trader or someone who is has to barter sort of between faculty. So, and you maybe described a couple examples already of course assignments, and okay. You do this course this semester, and I'll let you do another one next semester, right? So you're sort of, and that's not a skill I think that we develop on the tenure track. Like I do not horse trade. I try to stay out of politics、um, mm-hmm. on the tenure track because I I don't feel like that will benefit me, you know, my development as, as a faculty. But obviously,、mm-hmm. you have to do it. So、mm-hmm. how have you found that experience of sort of? Jumping into that role and having to now facilitate discussions or trade responsibilities between faculty. Well, yeah, well, absolutely. So you know, really interesting、uh, when it comes to the shared governance. You know, we say that in a way it sounds really you know、um, amazing, but、um, the reality sometimes is because we have to do this.、Uh, we are a small department. We only have five full time faculty members plus you know a few. Um, part time and uh, you know uh, temporary faculty members,、uh, but we have a student body of two hundred, and we also recently launched a pilot program of Bachelor of Science in Architectural Studies, and we also launched a Master of Science in Construction Management. So when you have those three deg- degree programs, about two hundred fifty students with only five full time faculty members, apparently you cannot rely on yourself. To do everything, so the shared governance is almost like a must. So the way we handle it is, we kind of you know encourage our individual faculty members, especially those full-time tenure-track faculty members, to learn or actually to be to volunteering、uh, to volunteer to assume leadership roles. So we have committees. 
So we have committees, we have coordinators assigned to faculty members to coordinate the Master of Science program, the Architecture Studies program. We have, you know, faculty member volunteer to be the, you know, uh, academic affairs committee chair to handle causal visions, course proposals, etc. We have full-time lecturers have been working for us for a long time and have a strong industry connections to handling relationship with the industry advisory board members and also recruiting, etc. So we are almost forced to share governance. It's, you know, in a way, but, you know, we find it's, it worked extremely well, as a matter of fact, you know, um, the way we, we set it up is like, we know here, you know, look, you know, we have such a small department. We have so much great potential to grow. In order to grow, everybody has to load up something. So take your, take your, take your pick, you know, which one do you want to, you know, volunteer to work on? So everybody knows that, you know, you can't push all the work to others. Everybody has to take something. So instead of actually being assigned, would rather to actually volunteer and choose the one we feel comfortable with, we feel like our skills just match. So that's kind of how it worked. And it's been working like this for, I would say, almost like a decade now. And everything really seemed to be in good shape. So we kind of like, you know, cherish this type of sort of system. We start to, we constantly improve and refine it, but the core idea behind this is really uh, not changing at all. So, um, so with you as the department chair now, and mm-hmm. are there other previous department chairs in your department now yes. that have stepped yes, down the my, faculty? Absolutely. My immediate chair, the last immediate chair, Brad Hyatt, is currently a faculty member. Okay. Yes. And do you find, um, so you mentioned that that relationship was, was pretty good. Um, at mm-hmm. the beginning, um, but I could see where that might create some some tension with their vision of what the you know, department should be versus what you kind of maybe want it to be. Yes, so we did actually discuss this as well. You know, we all understand. You know, leadership transition could mm-hmm. be tough uh, if you do not handle it well. It could be very um, you know um, dramatic, right? So the way we handle it is we oftentimes lays out. We have this sort of, you know, open conversation time. Like we do small talks, but we do also have open conversation time. We we oftentimes create memo, we use memo a lot. The memo means basically today at this faculty meeting, we discuss this and that. And by voting, you know, across board, we have reached this decision and have this kind of consensus. And we write it down and the put it into memo. So that becomes kind of our justification and documentation. So we discussed this, this is all collective decision, and we honor this decision by being part of the department. That's how we handle it. Um, are there occasions that our, you know, minds or visions um, com- conflict? Actually we do uh, in a few things, you know, sometimes I believe the priority should be something else. And well, um, he would insist some priorities on that part. In that case, we kind of like, you know, take approach and fully take one step back and think it through and come up with a little more justification about why do we believe this is, you know, our version individually. And then our faculty member is going to help us to kind of like, you know, discuss that. So discussion is always there. It's not like, I don't like you. I, I think I'm going to go for this one. You know, it's not like that. Good. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a really interesting topic. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, Brian. So, I mean, in looking at that as a system then of, of operating, 
you mentioned it's working well, but it, it, it seems as a listener that a lot of what's making this system kind of work well is that you just happen to have a really collegial group of colleagues that all want to do their part and everyone wants to step mm-hmm. in and, and handle these different roles. And when needed, you have a vote among the group and all of this makes sense, but it is based on things happen to align that my interests are, I'm going to take mm-hmm. on this service activity mm-hmm. that is needed. Surely at some point things don't, don't align perfectly. Um, using the term that Brian did and the, the horse trading concept, are, are there levers or opportunities you have as department chair to incentivize or disincentivize? I mean, I'm thinking of of you know some of the universities I've been involved with, and I, I can think um, sometimes things like lab space or number of students in a class or TA support or greater support or maybe even just what time of the day we offer classes. These are things that that are potentially negotiable in the right kinds of contexts that can get someone to say yes or no to different activities based on these. Have you had other experiences of having, I guess I'm going to say levers, but I don't really know if that's the best word, other opportunities like this to incentivize or disincentivize people? And how has this worked for you in getting them to volunteer with certain incentives? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, I said this, you know, um, I, I don't think if I, I don't think I will get myself into trouble, but this is how we actually work as a, as a, as a department. Internally, we all agree, you know, because we are still currently actively recruiting, you know, and we're looking for part-time instructors and we're looking for full-time instructors as well. So one of the things we as a department have decided to do is when we actually recruit our new, you know, team members, not only are we looking at their qualification, we do want to look at their personality. So we kind of in, intentionally will go look for people that is going to be a team player. That's our first step. I think that's really, really important. Um, you know, that's one thing we use that as kind of like a safety, you know, hey, the people we're going to bring in is going to share our vision, is going to be a team player, is going to be collegial. So that's one thing we make sure that our team even though it's growing, but we will maintain the quality of, you know, working together. Um, in terms of leverage, yes, absolutely. When we, we all agree upon, you know, when somebody taking on some really challenging task, whatever, we either will discuss, we'll negotiate, not at the department level, but with the dean, you know, we oftentimes, because you know that at the CSU system, most resources, including funding and all the other stuff come from the dean's office. The dean is directly interacting with the provost office. So that's how the budget model works. So in our in our case, when we actually trying to encourage or convince or some of our colleagues to take on a very challenging task there, we will compensate by providing release time, you know, things like that. So that's really one uh, worked very well in the past. And we do such things like this, take turns. You know, like, you know, Vivian just did, one of my colleagues did a really super challenging student competition projects and she's working really day and night to trying to get that thing, you know, working. Uh, and uh, next time there was another project come up, maybe this time one of my other colleagues, you know, volunteered to take that up. So we'll, we kind of cover each other, you know, with sometimes, you know, if you have too much going on there, we will allow the course release time and one of us is going to take more teaching. The other one is taking more time to do the service and lead the projects. So that's one way of doing it. Um, well, that always worked the way we want it. I don't think so. You know, we do have some difficulties, you know, when there's funding not available, there is resources not available. Well, in this case, we just have to learn from the failure and how can we actually better prepare it for the next time. So you just be realistic with it. Good. Well, that makes sense. 
I guess I'd be interested, um, actually, before I shift topics, I want to check, Brian Orway, any other thoughts on this? I want to talk to sort of about moving forward in your career post-department head. Any other thoughts on sort of experiences as department chair that you, you want to cover? Um, I would say, you know, another thing I think it's really important is, um, although as much as we are only a department chair, um, the involvement, I would say, uh, or the exposure to how the university or institution operates does give us a lot of exposure that, you know, why sometimes their things didn't work out in academia and why sometimes a decision wasn't made at the upper, you know, management level. So, you know, opportunities like this, you don't really get if you only work as a faculty. So I would encourage that, you know, if somebody had that kind of uh, aspiration to be looking at the managerial aspects of it, you know, become a department chair definitely will give you the opportunity there. So maybe that's a logical tie then. You've had this opportunity. You've also had the opportunity to be more of a traditional faculty member. Going forward, what do you, where, where are you going to go? What, what, as of now, if you had to define the next 20 years, which who knows where we'll be in that time, what what would you do? Or, or if, if you don't know, what would be the factors that would weigh on your decision to go to more of a traditional research teaching service faculty versus leadership say a dean or a provost, you know, or kind of wherever up the sort of academic ladder? Well, I would say this, right? You know, what I, I one of the biggest factors that influenced my decision is what me as a, you know, um, instructor, as a scholar, or maybe as a faculty, feel most excited about. Um, I would just put this, you know, as an administrator, a lot of times they are providing service to others to do their job better. Even as a department chair, really, when you actually get rid of all those other fluffy words and just looking at the essence of the work is how do you make other faculty member colleagues work better that's the most essential task i should you know always keep in my mind and uh, you know you can imagine the same thing with the presidents or with the provost right so what do you feel most excited about as a faculty is something that is going to decide is going to determine what i want to do in the future so at this point you know i i still yet need to find that excitement you know, purely become a facilitator instead of being a creator or doer. So I really enjoy being a doer. <laughs> so I, I love research and I love the interaction with the students. You know, if you ask me today, like, you know, what are you going to do after your turn? What I would say most likely I would like to resume uh, to be a faculty dad, um, pursue research. And uh, I do want to push my research to the next level. Uh, you know, as you know, as Steve knows very well, that you know we've been having some really great ideas, and uh, I want to see how those ideas are going to change the way our students learn, and uh, you know, so that's my aspiration there. So I really haven't thought about you know to continue or even go to the next level of administrative roles at this point, but you never know. But I, I feel good about it. This is this opportunity at least get me into the door. You know, I've had a chance to see what's inside there, right? Uh, so it's no longer mysterious to me. And of course, there's tons of new stuff we can learn from in the future, but I feel like, you know, having some sort of exposure on both sides definitely uh, gave me some advantage in the future. Yeah. Well, cause you also, you, you I mean, it gives you a sense of what are you saying yes or no to? Yeah, I mean, by, by, right. by knowing it now, that, that yeah, that, exactly. that makes a lot of sense. 
Well, sounds good. This is all great content. I really enjoyed enjoyed learning from you. We'd like to get into more of sort of a fun portion, if that's all right here, and sort of get to what we're calling our lightning round here. So, um, Brian Enter, do you want to maybe alternate, or do you want right. to take these on, and we can we can fire some lightning round questions off? Yeah, let's see how it goes. You want me to start? Yeah, why don't you start off? All right. Okay, so the, quick, quick answers here. You, you don't need to put 10 minutes of thought into these. Just whatever comes to your mind first, just, just lean into it. You know, there's okay no real wrong answer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. So the first all question. Right. All right. We talk a lot about failure and, and sort of lessons learned. And you've talked about some bigger scale issues that you've had, you know, as you've worked through your position. Let's talk a much smaller scale now. It's just small lessons learned. So what was what we're calling a micro failure that you experienced in the past week? And maybe what did you learn from it? So something really small scale, maybe inconsequential, but something that you learned from, a mistake that you made or an error that you made, and what did you learn from it? I would say it's really interaction with students. You never realize that students, actually, they know the game even better than us, you know? If in the past, our students go, you know, talk to you as a faculty member, they oftentimes will go to that individual, you know, advisor or whatever. Now, knowing that I'm in the department chair, they go straight to me. They complain to me all the time about different faculty members or whatever. I, to be honest with you, I really don't know how to handle that. That's actually on my book is like, how do I handle student complaints? And I'm not supposed to, you know, sometimes make a, um, provide a feedback immediately without actually knowing what's going on there. So I have a hard time until today is how much we should actually address students' complaints directly without consulting with our faculty and colleagues. I would say that's still a big time question for me, uh, even after being out here for a year and a half now so that's a good one yeah that is a, that's a good one because i could see that happening in the last week but but the way to solve that is a that's a bigger i mean that's a bigger failure yeah, than that's so that, a, that's oh a, yeah that's a exactly. lot just you don't have an answer for that people. one that's just yeah that's, a, that's no. a micro failure but i don't i don't think you have the answer yet i mean i could see where that would be difficult i mean they come to me yeah. and they maybe complain about a class i can directly address it they're coming to you and they're complaining about somebody else's class exactly okay <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, yeah. All right, let's jump on to the next one. So complete the following sentence. When I'm not working, there is nothing I would rather be doing than blank. It, it sounds weird, actually. Uh, I would say cooking. <laughs> I don't know why, but cooking makes me comfortable and relaxed. And, you know, that's just, yeah, that's my hobby, actually. <laughs> what's your, like, specialty? What's your favorite thing to make? Well, we actually make very traditional, uh, region-specific Chinese food, and which you don't typically get in this country, you know, because it's Americanized. Not only just that, not even some of my, you know, um, friends would actually even take. It's a super spicy and uh, very complex flavor. So, yeah. What, what region are you from originally in China? Uh, I would say it's in the middle, southern, but it's a little in the middle of China. Uh, so it's a called, called uh, Hunan province. Okay. Um, one of the most famous people from that province is uh, Chairman Mao, okay. or somebody knows as General Mao. So I, I ask because I, I in our American eyes, I'm sure that's not very close to Chinese restaurants. I've had Hunan dishes before, but I, I'm now I'm super interested because I'm a, a bit of a foodie when I have time. So now we need to, to meet up, and I would love to, to exchange Absolutely. some recipes with you. <laughs> 
needs to cook yeah. for you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, I'm I'll, happy to. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll return the fit. This is this is part of the fun, I think, of working with others. We have end of semester. This is a little off topic, but that's the point of this session. A lot of times, end of semesters, I'll have grad students over, and we'll all kind of make our favorite home cooked dish. So it'll just be this hodgepodge of different things, but it's a lot of fun. So. Absolutely. All right, Brian, I think you're up for the next one. Okay, Steve foreshadowed this one. So if you were paying attention, you'd be thinking of an answer, but I doubt I doubt you knew. Okay, so if you had a time machine and you could go anywhere, backward or forward in time, for two hours, only two hours, when and where would you go? I would actually forward, okay? I really want to go to the Mars because we are so close, right? So you can almost see it's happening, but I want to be there ahead of anyone else, spending two hours on Mars. That would be my dream. Uh, it really is. It hits me really big when I saw, you know, um, that recent flight by, and I was, um, um, I think it's um, Brandon. It was actually Virgin's, what's the name of Virgin's? Yeah, so that was really amazing. Uh, that definitely interested me. So, so short answer: Mars, two hours. It's a good answer. No one's ever answered that. Uh, when usually when we say where, they think Earthbound and not. <laughs> yeah, that's a great answer though. Yeah. Mars would be so so, especially because you're right. Like you wouldn't be so disconnected from where we'll be. Like right. your kids or grandkids yeah. or great grandkids. <laughs> like somewhere in the foreseeable future, we'll probably be there. So that's a yeah, that's a great cool. idea. All right. All right. Last but not least, this is sort of a fun one, but uh, is illustrative of sort of your your um, loves for the job. What's your favorite part of your career that you can't really list on your CV that doesn't really have a place in the traditional sections on a CV? That's actually it's there. The other day I was thinking about the same question there. Actually, I had a conversation there. So my favorite part is I have students give me a call. Like students graduate a couple of years already. Give me a call and telling me, you know, today in my job, I get promoted because, you know, I took a class with you that really most motivated me to pursue that career path. That happened to me twice already. So it's almost like, wow, I, I don't know what to tell them. You know, it's like I appreciate they actually think of me you know, when they actually get that big moment in their life. Um, I remember um, even just a few years ago, I had a student come back visit campus and he met me in the office and he just, you know, chat about and he he said to me, like, by the, by the way, you know that, you know, I chose this career because I had the class with you back, you know, the first semester I get into first day and did this and that. You asked me asked to do this project. I was like, huh, I don't know that actually students actually do care and oh, what do we do? Do I actually have an impact on them? So that's really nice and sweet for them to tell us, tell me that, you know, so. Yeah, that's great. Cool. It's interesting, too, because that's the kind of feedback that I think is almost more important than what does the student think about your course immediately at the end of the, ses the semester when they're filling out the evaluations. Mm -hmm. Like what you just described seems like it kind of matters more. But you're right. Like, I don't I don't know where I would really write that on a CV. Yeah, right. No yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, great. This was fun. I feel like we had a lot of good discussion here. Um, why don't we, we slowly wrap up before we do, I want to make sure way, since you're a guest, do you give you the last word? Do you have any thoughts or other, other items you want to cover or any other things to chat about? 
Well, not really, but I just want to thank you both for inviting me. This is a lot of fun, as you said, you know, and I think this this could be, you know, um, helpful to a lot of our incoming emerging professionals in our field. Uh, I really appreciate that. Well, thanks. Great. We hope so. And thank you all for listening. As always, this has been another episode of Prophet's Error. We will hopefully catch you on the next one. Best wishes to you, and uh, we'll catch you soon. Thanks. Thanks.